You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place, and we pray that we would have an encounter with you, the living God, that we would see you as you are, and that we would know you uh, as you are, as you're manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, this, uh, this semester, we're really going to be talking about uh, evangelism. Uh, that, that's something that uh, comes up a lot in conversations that I have, people saying, how do I uh, evangelize my friends and family? How do I evangelize uh, my workplace? Uh, or even more generally, what does it look like to be a Christian in the world? And so today we're going to kick it off on asking the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I don't think that that's a question that we can really take for granted, uh, either in the nation in which we live, uh, where there's a lot of conversation uh, about that. Uh, For instance, uh, I was having a conversation a couple months ago with someone who said, I really want to believe in Jesus, but I'm not a Republican. And the understanding that they really had was that they thought that uh, you had to be a Republican uh, in order to be uh, a believer uh, in Jesus. And that's not to say that Jesus, uh, by the power of his Holy Spirit, doesn't begin to, to shape and, and change and, and, and bring us around to his will, whatever that may be, because what we see in the New Testament is Jesus in moments is incredibly liberal, and then in other moments is, an incredi- is incredibly conservative, uh, and we seek more to conform our lives to him rather than to conform our lives to any particular party platform. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there's the political dynamic in the world in which we live that has folks really wound up about what it means to be a Christian, so much so that I even saw a headline the other day that read, uh, I'm really sick and tired of Christians, but I'm not ready to give up on Jesus yet. And I think that some of us feel that way. Uh, People that may get up and and even suppose to represent Christianity and you just cringe and you're just thinking, that's not what I think, and frankly, it's not what I think because I don't think that that's what, what Jesus thinks. Um, and uh, then there's the other dynamic that we deal with within our own specific culture, which is Christianity by osmosis. Uh, so, you know, when uh, around here, it's still a bit of a burnt over district in that uh, where you go to church is part of cocktail party conversation. It's not awkward. You're going to ask that question in the same context in which you might ask someone, what do they do for a living? And in fact, I think Birmingham, by and large, is still a place where if you said, I don't go anywhere, people would look at you like you're crazy. Uh, But what I have found is that there's little code language now that, that we use in Birmingham where people will say, oh, well, I go to the Advent. Where do you go to church? And they'll say, oh, I grew up at St. Whatever's. You know, I grew up at the Advent, I grew up at IPC, I grew, which means that they still have some sort of cultural connection. They still want their babies baptized, they still want to get married there, they still want to go there for Christmas and Easter. There's still that cultural connection. And one of the things that we're going to talk about in the midst of this semester is the tendency that the church has to give those people the hardest time they possibly can. So in church lingo, we call them priesters, Christmas and Easter people. Right? They come on Christmas and Easter, and nothing makes me shudder more than the pastor who gets up on Christmas and Easter and says, wow, 
I hope you know that we have church, you know, 51 other weeks uh, out of the year other than just uh, Easter Sunday. I mean, because the thing, for crying out loud, they're there. Uh, what more do you want? And, and I don't know about you, but if I heard that and I was sort of a nominal believer, I would, I would say, I don't want to hear anything else that this person has to say. Uh, I'm done with them. And I've already brought up a term, nominal believer. Uh, and we're going to talk a lot about that this semester too, because these are people who actually may even go so far as to say, I'm a Christian, and yet when you start to pull back and peel back the layers, it's hard to actually determine whether they're a Christian or not. Now, this is not meant to drive people to despair, but for them to actually reckon with who the Lord Jesus Christ is, who they are, and where they stand in relation to Him. And so what does it mean to be a real Christian. I wonder if you would open your Bibles, you can find them in the pew, to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at two passages from Matthew's gospel today. This is verses 21 through 23. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Every once in a while, I'll, Jesus will say something. Actually, a lot of the times. You know, Jesus talks more about hell than any other person in the entirety of the Bible. And yet oftentimes we'll run into people, and this may be you, and I found myself at, the, at one point talking to a Christian, uh, another Christian, and I said, I just can't believe in a Jesus who. Or I'd like to think of Jesus as. Well, that's problematic, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter a hill of beans what I think. <laughs> uh, it, it matters what... what God thinks, and it matters uh, how Jesus has manifested himself. And so in the first instance, understanding who Jesus is means that we have to go to the only source by which we can know the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the Bible. Who does Jesus say that he is? Uh, C.S. Lewis has a, a wonderful way of putting this. That is that when you read through the Gospels, you're only presented with a couple options as to who Jesus is. If he is who he says he is, you could say he's a lunatic. You could say he's a crazy man because only crazy people say that I am the one who has been sent down from heaven. Only a crazy man says I am the bread of life. Who eats of my flesh will not hunger. They won't, you know, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Another option that's presented to us is that he's just lying. Jesus is just making this kind of stuff up. And the final option, which I think is the option the Bible presents to us, is that he's actually Lord. Not a lunatic, not a liar, not a Lord. But you see, when you read through the Gospels, we're not afforded the luxury of being able to say, well, I'd like to think of Jesus just as a great moral teacher. I mean, we've tried to do that over the years, sometimes in a very literal fashion. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who I have great affection for, uh, Lily got in trouble in class this year because her teacher said, this year is the bicentennial of what? And she raised her hand and said, the University of Virginia. <laughs> and she's right. Amen, boom shakalaka. 
Thomas Jefferson I love, but uh, many of you uh, have seen or heard of the Jefferson Bible where Jefferson went in and he cut out not just the miracles, but those bits in the Bible that he didn't like. When Jesus said something he didn't like, he, he cut it out. Or worse yet, if you haven't had a chance to, um, uh, to see it at the Smithsonian, uh, there's a collection of Bibles on display, and one of them is the slave Bible that was published in the 1800s that was meant for slaves. And this edition of the Bible, if you can call it that, excludes the book of Exodus, the book of Revelation, and cuts out any bits of the New and Old Testament that would give a slave any idea that they might have a, have a right to freedom. Now, does that present the totality of who God is and what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ? No. And we may not be cutting and pasting, uh, and yet many times we come to the Bible and we take away uh, the ideas that we want to take away and we leave the ones that we want to leave, and we end up making Jesus a caricature that incidentally often resembles ourselves. All right, this was the Niebuhr quote, in the beginning God created man in his own image and since then we've been trying to return the favor. And so the God that we want to believe in or when we say things like, I'd like to believe in a God who, or I can't believe in a God, fill in the blank, it turns out that that God looks a whole lot like us. And yet what I'm confronted by, especially in the Lord Jesus, I'm forced to reckon with a God that can't be contained, who can't be domesticated. When I was a little boy, I had an uncle who raised rabbits, uh, and he gave uh, a rabbit to me, and it was one of those little dwarf bunnies, and I have a cousin who's about four years older than I am, and he gave him, I don't even know what kind of breed it is, but it looked like a Shetland pony. Have you seen these rabbits? And he gave this big rabbit to my bigger cousin, and of course, I'm a little boy, I'm looking at this rabbit, this is, this is an injustice. This is an injustice. I've got this wee rabbit, and he's got this giant, awesome rabbit. And uh, my cousin, for some reason, after having the rabbit for just a couple minutes, was very happy to trade with me. And so he took my rabbit, and I took his rabbit, and this thing took me downtown. I mean, this thing was just scratching and biting, and it wasn't too long before I said to my cousin, let's swap back. And he said, no, no, no. You've got what you've got. And I think God's a little bit like that. We want a God who we can hold in our hands and we're able to control and to say this is a kind of nice thing. But the reality is, is that when we try to put God in our hands, he's like the giant bunny that is just going after us. Right? He can't be contained. He can't be managed. And so that's the God that's presented to us in uh, the pages of the New Testament and indeed in the Old but I'd also say, too, that I often hear people say things like, I can't believe in a God who, and when I listen to them, I would say, well, you do realize that the Bible agrees with you. Uh, this God that you fashioned actually is not uh, necessarily a God that looks like you, but it's also not the God of the Bible. And so they've picked up ideas along the way that are divorced from the scriptures that give them a misunderstanding of who God is. So things like, well, I have a hard time believing in a God who says God helps those who help themselves. Well, you'll be glad to know that God doesn't say that. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. And 
And and they look at me and they say, how do you know that? I'm like, well, uh, you should try reading the Bible, just opening it up and seeing what God has to say about himself and so that all of these misunderstandings about who God is. But of course, if we are confronted with something that, that we don't necessarily like about God, the problem is on our end. But let's take a minute and let's look at this passage from John, Matthew chapter 7. I can see clearly we're not probably going to get very far today, but Jesus says, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I've already read all this, but I'm reading it again. In your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart me from you workers of lawlessness. Now, this passage doesn't make a lot of sense for many reasons. One, it's offensive. Because I read somewhere else in the Bible that anybody who calls the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And so who are these people that are saying, Lord, Lord? And Jesus says to me, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is the one that will enter the kingdom of heaven. But isn't prophesying in the name of the Lord, casting out demons in God's name, doing mighty works in the name of Jesus, isn't that doing the work of God? Isn't that what it's all about? Well, what is it that is to be doing the works of God? Put that question aside for a minute. Because I would think that there's a real concrete example of what Jesus is talking about in the Bible. One, we know that the people who are saying, did we not? In the first instance, these are people who are of upright moral character that actually think that they're faithfully following God. Jesus is not talking about atheists. He's not talking about pluralists. He's not talking about heretics. He's talking about people who really thought that they were doing God's will. Two examples of this in the Bible. One is Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. When Paul was headed off to Antioch, I'm sorry, not Antioch, to Damascus, in order to kidnap Christians and bring them back on trial, Paul was thoroughly convinced that he was doing God's will until God intervened in his life. And his eyes were open, the scales fell off, and he actually was able to see Jesus for who he is and who he was in light of the Lord Jesus Christ and his own brokenness, and then turned to him and began to walk in the light and began to walk in the truth. But maybe the more startling example of this is Judas. You remember that Jesus sent out the disciples two by two? Don't take a cloak, don't take money, don't take an extra pair of sandals. And when they came back, do you remember they were rejoicing that they cast out demons, that they prophesied, they did all of these amazing things in, uh, in God's name. And then at the Last Supper, Jesus says, there's one amongst you who is going to betray me. And you know, nobody around the table says, it's Judas, we know it's him. Because they couldn't sit back and say, you know, when we went out two by two, Judas didn't cast out quite as many demons as we did. Judas didn't preach as much as we did. Uh, In fact, it was astounding to them uh, that it was anybody in the room and they wondered who it might be. And yet, there was Judas, 
who really we learn in the pages of the New Testament kept the purse of the Lord and really uh, was self-interested to the point that he was blinded to even who Jesus was. We remember that. Remember when the woman washed Jesus' feet uh, and dried them with her hair and, and broke the alabaster uh, jar on his feet. And Judas said, what a waste of money. What a waste of money. See, Judas wasn't kingdom-minded in any sense of the word and was still thinking about himself in his own life and actually what Jesus could do for him. And we do see that here in chapter 7 when we read that on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not prophesy? That there are those who are going to stand before the judgment seat and say, this is what I did. This is what I did. Not what Jesus did did through me. There's another story that Jesus tells that I want to read in Matthew chapter 25, and then I'm going to open it up to some questions and mention something from John chapter 6. This is a longer passage, Matthew 25, beginning with the 31st verse. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. One of the things that, that I, I note about this passage that is going to be lost to those of us who didn't grow up in an agricultural community, uh, but there are places in the world that where you go, uh, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between sheep and goats. If you've ever been to a Caribbean nation, in fact, if you ever go to Israel, this is going to be a difficult task. How do you identify a sheep and how do you identify a goat? And there are ways to do it, but you have to really watch them in order to determine uh, what it is. And do you, know, do you know what the determining thing is? Sheep never look up. They're always eating. They always have their heads down. Inevitably, goats look up. Goats go to high places. They look around. They're on the lookout. Sheep are just looking for their next meal. So they go from patch of grass to patch of grass to patch of grass until what? They're lost. They've gone astray. So this is the imagery that Jesus uses often. But simply to look at a sheep and a goat, 
by appearance, they're, they're not really, it's very hard to discern uh, who is a sheep and who is a goat. And so keeping that in mind here, uh, that's part of the story that Jesus is telling. And so Jesus is saying, here on this side, if we get into the business of saying sheep, goat, sheep, sheep, goat, goat, uh, we're missing the point of that. But you also notice that when Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me, do you notice that the response is the same both with the sheep and the goats? When did we do that? When were we aware of that? And yet Jesus' response to them is very different. And this is what I think Jesus is getting at. And he says this in John chapter 6. When the people ask him, this is verse 28 and 29, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now most people will say that doing the work of God is doing really good deeds. And some of us even have a karmic understanding of how the universe works. If I do really good things, then God will reward me. Uh, when I was in high school, I actually had to keep for a world religions class a karma journal, uh, which uh, went well for a while. And so I would have things down like, you know, I, I said something really awful to my brothers. That was an hourly occurrence. Um, I said something awful to my brothers, or I disobeyed my parents. And then in the other column, you did those things that would help make up for the bad things. And normally it was like I went and bought my mother flowers to say I was sorry for my disobedience. I really started out this way. But as the week went on, it got to be like in the positive side, I was really reaching. I offered to do the dishes. Right? I didn't eat the last cookie. Uh, I did eat the last cookie, but I told my family that they're now all gone to prepare them for the inevitable disappointment that they would experience when they reached the cookie jar. I found that I, I couldn't actually keep it even. And if we actually were to do a radical inventory of ourselves, uh, we would find that that is the case as it stands up to the standard that God sets, which is perfection. And so even if it were, well, I know that I'm doing the work of God uh, because I'm doing all of these things that actually in and of themselves are wonderful. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, but there's an insinuation here that these people who are cast out actually did those things. They're moral good people. But what does it then mean to be doing the work of God? Because we can't say, I'm a Christian because I do all of these wonderful things. Because frankly, I know people who are not Christians who are a whole lot nicer than I am. That really pains my heart to have to admit that. Uh, but it's true. So this is what Jesus says when they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. To do the work of God is to believe in Jesus whom he has sent. Now what does this do? When we come to a place in our lives when we're able to confess Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, he sends his Holy Spirit into our lives and we're transformed by him. It's a supernatural explanation. If there's nothing worldly that we, can use to, that we can point to to describe the radical change in our lives. 
as much as we might try. And so we might see someone who's come out of great hardship and you think, my goodness, uh, you, you, know, you, uh, you must have tried really hard to get yourself out of this situation that you are in and it really is astounding and good on you. But those of us who have come out of difficult situations know that no, it was God who brought me out of that. He's the only explanation that can, he's the only explanation for who I am and where I am today. And so confessing the Lord Jesus Christ is the first step in understanding what it means to be doing the work of God and what it means to be a believer. Now we shouldn't make a dichotomy into thinking that well you can believe in Jesus Christ as savior but you can't believe in him as lord. And there are a lot of people in the world and in our community and uh, in our families who are big fans of Jesus but are not necessarily followers of him. Now, of course, those of us who are Christians should readily admit we are abysmal failures at following the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are putting our trust in him and we stand before his judgment seat, do you know what we're going to hear? He's going to say, when you were hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And we're going to be sitting there thinking, when in the world did I do that? The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. But I think that that's the great difference. That as believers, we understand that we do a miserable job of following Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's the difference. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer that readily recognizes in our own lives that I am not what I want to be and I'm not what I'm being called to be. And I can't wait for that day when Jesus actually makes me into who he wants me to be. And so the idea that being a Christian means that you're going to get morally better day by day is not necessarily true. Now, I think in some sense it is true, but that's true only because of the growing conviction in our lives that we need transformation. So the great story about my Uncle David, my cousin who's also in ministry, is a bit of a knucklehead, asked him, my Uncle David had been the pastor of a large church for decades and at this point he's in his 80s and retired and my cousin asked him, Uncle David, have you found yourself as you get older, have you found yourself growing in holiness? And my Uncle David said, well, this is what I can say. As I've grown older, my desire to sin has not, has not diminished, only my physical capacity to act upon it. <laughs> but you see, my Uncle David was really articulating is that what the Christian looks like, what the Christian life looks like, is every day you wake up, you realize more and more your utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, as well as a number of other hymns, uh, this was at the end of his life. He said, the two great truths that I've learned in my life is that I am a great sinner, but that Christ is a great Savior. That's, that's how a mature Christian speaks. They don't look at their lives and say, yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, but they look at their lives and they think, gosh, 
I am a complete and total mess. And so there's a bit of an irony there, isn't there? It's Romans 7 where Paul is struggling with the same issue, where as he matures in the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, you know, it was almost better when I wasn't a Christian. I thought I was moral and upright and doing even godly things, but the moment I became a Christian, I realized I'm a total wreck. I'm not the person that God has called me to be. And so when someone asks us, asks us why we're a Christian, or more specifically, how do you know you're a Christian, what would you say? Would you say, I'm, a belie- I'm someone who is putting my hope and my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trusting that his shed blood upon the cross is enough to cover my sins and to reconcile me with God the Father. And because he got up out of the grave, it means that the victory is mine too and that when I die, I will be spending eternity with my heavenly Father along with all those who put their trust in him. And while I am here on this earth... My whole life, body and soul, has been given over to him. And so what that means is I understand myself as a sinner saved by grace. And what that does is it actually engenders compassion and love in my heart for my neighbors, whether they're Christians or not. In fact, I find it a whole lot easier to love non-Christians than Christians. And as a Christian, I have to guard myself against that because I prefer a certain kind of sinner. I don't like Pharisees. I just don't like them. I don't like the self-righteous. I do like people who come in and say, well, I was in a motorcycle gang and I used to drown kittens and and I did all these bad things and then I I became a Christian and and God turned my life around and I still like riding motorcycles and all that kind of stuff, but but my life has totally changed. And, And this was what Jesus encountered too. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? That parable was not aimed at sinners and tax collectors, that was aimed at the Pharisees and the scribes. Now for some of us, we do have a testimony whereby we kind of hit rock bottom and we understand who we are as sinners in need of a Savior, that we're broken individuals that are in need of being put back together, that we're in need of a new heart. But one of the things that I found where John Bunyan was not totally right in Pilgrim's Progress is this understanding that you have to hit rock bottom in order to become a Christian. Because I would bet that many of us in here today, our testimony is this. I grew up in the church and there's never a moment where I didn't understand who Jesus Christ was as Lord and Savior. I didn't have to go through the slough of despond. I didn't have to go through the muck and mire. And there's, you know, uh, the Old Testament tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so what I'm not saying is that you have to get to some place where you're just so upset with yourself and your life is so broken that that's only when you can turn to Jesus. Because for many of us, we may not have ever gotten to that point and, and yet are still able to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and to say, I'm putting my faith and trust in you and I'm following and obeying you as my Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
to put your trust in him, to believe on him whom God has sent. And when the Holy Spirit comes in our lives, we are made more and more like him, even when we're unaware of it. And just when you think that you're not growing in the Lord, think about this. When you go to a family reunion, especially when you were younger, you know, everybody's got an Aunt Gladys who says, you've grown up so much. And you think, no, I haven't. What are you talking about? But because she's seen you, actually, she's not seen you over the course of a year, her point of comparison is what you look like the year before. And for those of us that have to live with ourselves, it's hard for us to see that the Lord is actually doing that transformative work in our lives. In the same way that I think I look the same way that I did in college, I mean, you all think that too, right? You think you really haven't changed, and then you see a picture of yourself, and you're like, man. Or better yet, you know when you look at a picture of yourself, and you think, ugh, I look terrible. And then five years later, you look at the same picture, and you say, man, I'd kill to look like that again. <laughs> right? That's actually God's alien work in our lives, that you think, you, you just can't see where God has brought you, and yet God is doing that work uh, in your life. So what is our version of all of this? Are we tempted to put our faith in anything but the shed blood of Jesus Christ? What is our version of, but Lord, didn't I? Didn't I do all of these good things? Didn't I avoid all of these bad things? The kingdom of heaven is completely turned upside down. It's not the righteous that are in need of a savior, but those who are sick and call out for mercy upon him. I don't remember who said it, but I think that they were right, that when we get to heaven, we're going to be very surprised because we're going to find that, that heaven is populated by sinners and hell is populated by the self-righteous. And so... This morning, I hope that if you've never turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and put your trust in him and followed after him, that you would do that this morning. And for those of you uh, who are tempted to put your trust in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, turn to him and live. And those of us who are Christians that are struggling mightily, uh, that we would throw ourselves upon his mercy and that we would not put our trust in anything apart from his shed blood. Questions, comments, concerns? So just a little light Bible reading this morning uh, as we head into this. We're going to get a little bit more practical as, as the time goes on. And in fact, uh, there are a couple classes where I'm going to really need your help uh, in sorting uh, some stuff out. And so if you get your adventure, take a look at the, uh, at the upcoming classes and, um, and, and come ready uh, to teach me. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we do pray that it would be all about you and not about us, that we would not simply be fans of you, but that we would be followers of you. Lord, we, we know that we can't do that in our own strength, and that being a Christian is not uh, the sum of our good works or even our best intentions, but it's all about what you've done for us by your cross and resurrection. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit uh, to live as you've called us to do, 
And Lord, that we would know really what it means to be in fellowship with you and to live our lives in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.